Criticism continues to surface over access to official information and the ability for public servants to provide frank advice free of political pressure. The Chief Ombudsman is due to report back shortly on a review of how the Official Information Act is operating, while the Public Service Association says many of its members worry about undue influence. This RNZ Insight programme investigates whether the public service is facing increasing political pressure and what that might mean for democracy. Two or three years ago you could say of New Zealand, all right, we haven't seen some of the things here that we you know, had seen in Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom, but I don't think we can say that any longer. You know, this is a, a fragile flower, you know, it's at risk. The fragile flower Victoria University lecturer Chris Eichbaum refers to as New Zealand's democracy. Dr Eichbaum is a lecturer at Victoria University's School of Government and he's taken a keen interest in what he describes as a worrying trend of politicisation of the country's public service. But it's not a fear shared by everyone. There is a very strong understanding within the public service about what it means to be a public servant and what that means in terms of political impartiality. I'm Brent Edwards and this insight examines the state of the country's public service. Is it open to political pressure and should New Zealanders have any concerns over this country's democratic system? And these are the people that the Labour Party is saying are more important to support than New Zealanders who deserve protecting when they come back here. Mr Davis, if you want to put yourself on the side of sex offenders, go ahead, my son, but we'll defend New Zealanders. This is politics at its sharpest, with the Prime Minister John Key on the attack over Labour's criticism the government isn't doing enough to help New Zealand criminals held in detainment in Australia waiting to be deported. This is not the sort of debate public servants are engaged in, but is the public service nevertheless now being dragged more and more into politics? Is it losing its mantle of political neutrality? After years of research, Chris Eichbaum fears it is. He says the concept of a politically neutral public service has been eroded by the emergence and growth of political advisers in ministers' offices. What we saw uh, progressively over time was increasingly that ministerial officers and prime ministerial officers were using, uh, employing staff on what were known as event-based contracts. So you were there as a kind of different kind of public servant. You weren't expected to be politically neutral. You were there to either provide uh, strategic political advice. Uh, You know, some of these staff were employed because they were policy specialists in their own right and so they shared a minister or government's view about a particular policy. But it's also included, uh, you know, press secretaries and and other staff working in communications. Dr Eichbaum doesn't believe political advisers should be scrapped, but he questions the influence they now have on government policy and the public service. I was uh, interested to learn recently that, in fact, at meetings of cabinet committees, uh, these political advisers are in attendance. So they're in there in the discussions of the cabinet committees with the ministers and the officials. And it's, of course, at the cabinet committees where most of the really important discussions and decisions are made. Chris Eichbaum says this development does carry risks. One of the risks, obviously, in a Westminster system where... In my view, the public service enjoys a constitutional personality in its own right. The risk is one of politicisation. Now, what I mean by that is that in a Westminster-style system like New Zealand, that constitutional personality I talked about is expressed in the responsibility of public servants to furnish ministers with comprehensive advice in a free, frank and fearless manner. 
uh, and also to retain the uh, capacity and capability to do the same thing with any successive government. The Public Service Association, the union which represents public servants, shares Dr Eichbaum's fear. It surveys its members regularly about the political pressure they face. The PSA National Secretary, Erin Palacic, says public servants complain that pressure is increasing. We have members expressing opinions uh, like that they have to match the advice they give to ministerial expectations rather than the best advice that uh, advice should go out in draft form so that it can be rewritten. It sounds as though they feel that there's a lot more political meddling by ministers at the moment into the work that they're doing. And this is a real concern. It's a concern for democracy and for the um, quality of the advice that they're able to provide. So they don't feel they can give free and frank advice anymore? No, and um, it seems to be coming from those who have been in the service for a long time, also those who have just entered it, that um, it's not as free and frank as it needs to be. So is this a recent development, or or has it been developing over many years? It certainly seems as though the situation's getting worse. Although I'm just thinking about that comment from the, the one who's been in the civil service for a long time who said it's always been this way. But it, it certainly sounds as though the minister's intervention or interference um, is much more noticeable now than, than in earlier years. But the State Services Commissioner, Ian Rennie, is confident public servants are still able to provide free and frank advice. I've got a very strong expectation of chief executives that they are offering professional, politically impartial advice to their ministers and that is undertaken also by their staff. And I believe that it happens in the vast majority uh, of, of situations. And I believe in the vast majority of situations ministerial advisers understand and respect the role that those public servants play. The Prime Minister John Key is also confident about the neutrality of the public service, although he can't make comparisons with past practice. I can't comment because I wasn't there 30 years ago, but if you look at my office, there's two types of people that give me advice. There's the um, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, or the Cabinet Office, typically, and or there's my office uh, staff, PMO staff. When it looks to, when, if you look at the my staff, they're on exploding contracts, they're totally political and they are there to provide me political advice as well as policy advice. If you look at what happens through, say, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet or uh, through the Cabinet Office, in my experience, they are extremely neutral. They don't advise on political issues, um, they don't offer a political opinion. They're obviously aware of the politics of an issue. They're not, they're not stupid, they live in a vacuum, but they don't, uh, they're very, in my experience, very careful, and we're very careful about how and when we engage them. But what about a code of conduct for political advisers? If you ask the State Services Commissioner, I think you'll find that he already does have a code of conduct of the way they should operate, and obviously those rules change slightly around the election period. In my experience, they've always been thoroughly professional. I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are advisors to me in the policy advisory group or whatever who don't vote for a national government. I mean, but in my experience, they're all thoroughly professional and very neutral in the way they operate. And when I first became Prime Minister, I remember literally walking in the door at the time Martin Weavers was the, the head of the Department of Prime Minister in and it was literally good morning, Prime Minister. I mean, they, uh, they, they deal with the government of the day in a neutral way, in my experience. Despite the question being about political advisers in his private office, Mr Key restricts his answer to public servants in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet.
The Prime Minister says he would not fire anyone in relation to intense criticism of senior staff in a new report. The Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, Cheryl Gwynne, says the SIS released inaccurate and misleading information that led to criticism of Labour's Phil Goff in 2011. Her report also criticises two senior key staffers, Jason Ede and Phil DeJoux, along with the former head of the SIS, Warren Tucker. Mr Key was asked on morning... Yet it was political advisers in Mr Key's office who were at the centre of a scandal regarding the release of information by the Security Intelligence Service about the then Labour leader Phil Goff in 2011. The information was released to right-wing blogger Cameron Slater, while requests from journalists were ignored by the SIS. It related to Mr Goff's statements that he had not been briefed by the SIS about the suspicious activity of some Israeli citizens at the time of the Christchurch earthquake. The SIS release suggested he had, raising questions about Mr Goff's credibility. The Inspector-General of Intelligence and Security, Cheryl Gwynne, found the SIS had released incomplete, inaccurate and misleading information, although she said the disclosure did not breach any obligations of confidentiality owed to the SIS. Nor did she find there was any political collusion between the SIS and the Prime Minister's office, but she did find the SIS didn't have in place proper procedures to maintain its political neutrality in its relationship with Mr Key's office. What became evident was that Dr Tucker was regularly briefing Mr Key's then Deputy Chief of Staff, Phil DeJoux, who was a political appointment within the Prime Minister's office. In his office on Parliament's second floor, Phil Goff remains angry about the incident. You know, it's critically important that when you have an agency with extraordinary powers, like the Security Intelligence Service, that that agency not become politicised. John Key absolutely politicised that role. He had his political staffer, his deputy chief of staff, Phil DeJew, as the person that was briefed by the SIS rather than being briefed directly by them. Phil DeJew then worked with Jason Ede in the Prime Minister's office once again to leak material from the SIS directly to Cameron Slater, whale oil, knowing that it would be used in a, in a scurrilous and dishonest way. That probably, in my time in politics, is the worst example of direct politicisation of a sensitive agency by a Prime Minister, and while the SIS apologised to me, John Key never did. The University of Victoria lecturer Chris Eichbaum agrees it was a very serious matter. Up until recently you would have said that in New Zealand we haven't seen the kind of egregious uh, kind of systemic failures that we've seen in other jurisdictions, but I don't think we can, we can say that any longer. I think the report of the Inspector General of Security and Intelligence uh, that was released earlier this year uh, around information or briefings that, that were or were not provided to, to Mr Goff when he was leader of the opposition showed up some very, very serious failures on both sides, the public service and within the, with the Prime Minister's office. I don't think it's good enough that, in fact, the main reporting line, say, through to the Prime Minister, who has responsibility for security intelligence, uh, is, in fact, the, um, the Deputy Chief of Staff, who's a political appointee. That simply uh, is uh, uh, inappropriate. Both Phil DeJoux and Jason Ede no longer work in the Prime Minister's office, and Mr Key has passed on direct responsibility for the SIS and the Government Communications Security Bureau to the Attorney-General, Chris Finlayson. But the SIS scandal also raised wider worries about how government agencies respond to Official Information Act requests. 
The Chief Ombudsman Beverly Wakeham is conducting an investigation into claims government departments, driven possibly by political considerations, are failing to follow both the letter and spirit of the law in releasing information. The PSA tried to help by circulating a survey written by the Ombudsman's office among its members, but Erin Palachik says it struck opposition. We were asked by the Office of the Ombudsman to distribute the survey for them, for example, because they didn't have the resources to do it. And even when we agreed to and did that, we had some pushback from agencies suggesting that our members and that those workplaces shouldn't be filling out that survey and giving information to the Office of the Ombudsman. What, your government department saying that they shouldn't be giving information to the Office of the Ombudsman? Mm -hmm. Well, not filling out the survey that we had on the behalf of the Office of the Ombudsman circulated to our members. Did they have a particular argument for why? I think it was just a, a sign that another kind of pressure being put on our members to say don't go giving any more information than you have to. But the Ombudsman's office says only one agency refused to put the survey on its website. The State Services Commissioner Ian Rennie appears to concede however that not all agencies were happy with the PSA's involvement in the review. I think there's a um at the end of the day, that's a judgment for each chief executive. I think while it's important to actually get information about how the Official Information Act is working from the point of view of both uh, people who work in the state sector and people who make requests, uh, I think it's important that uh, we collect that information in a uh, robust statistical manner uh, and that that approach could have been, I think, better developed uh, with the agencies themselves. The former Green Party co-leader and now head of Greenpeace New Zealand, Russell Norman, criticises the government's attitude towards the Official Information Act. Dr Norman says the Prime Minister has admitted the government delays releases when it suits its political purposes. It does appear that public servants are thinking very hard about what their political masters would like to be released and are working pretty hard to make sure it doesn't get released. And, you know, it's a little bit like um, justice delayed is justice denied. When you delay information, Official Information Act requests for literally years, at a certain point the release of the information doesn't mean much anymore because it's so out of date and there is enormous delay in releasing information out of government. But Ian Rennie is confident public servants are not making political judgments on information releases. The Official Information Act uh, is one of the fundamentals of, I think, good government in New Zealand. It, it, it's really important and I think that uh, I have a strong expectation on chief executives that they take their responsibilities under the Act very seriously. And the Chief Ombudsman, Beverly Wakeham, says the review of the OIA, which will be released this Thursday, hasn't found evidence of widespread abuse. Any chief executive with this sort would, would resist overt political pressure, but you know, even if it is career-limiting, which it might well be. But the fact of the matter is, uh, if you're in the public sector, you've got responsibilities and accountabilities yourself. We certainly didn't find it. We've talked to ministers, we've talked to political advisers, we've talked to media, we've talked to members of the public, we've talked to all manner of requesters. In the end, the advice public servants give can influence the way services are delivered. For instance, immunisations. Phil Goff says the job they do is crucial and it's essential the public service remains above politics. There will be uh, political argy-bargy uh, by by the party that runs government for the time being, and I'm not simply uh, focused on the National Party, whoever is in government, 
Yes, there will always be politics, but the civil service should remain impartial, neutral and subject to the law, not subject to the political whim of the minister that they happen to work for. The United Future leader and government minister Peter Dunn has been an MP since 1984. Mr Dunn agrees the influence of political advisers has grown in that time. I think in the early days as political advisers started to appear, and they were probably a creature of the late 70s, early 80s at best, was the political advisor was a very narrow advisor. You know, Minister, you'll lose votes if you do this. Whereas I think what's evolved over the years now is the political advisor, and it depends a lot on the personality of the person, is the go-to person. So that it's not just the ministerial spokesperson, but the person who will be negotiating with other political advisers and other ministers' offices about where the parameters of an issue might be. My minister won't buy that, or my minister's not going to compromise on this. And then they then sort of scope the discussion that the ministers actually then have. And they also interact with, with the departments on the same vein, like, don't you put up that idea, that's not going to fly, that type of thing. So I think it's a much more substantial role now than it was in its early composition. But Mr Dunn doesn't think that's a bad thing. In the last couple of years under this government, with the shift to the government setting out for the first time some pretty basic objectives about what it wants to do, and then following those up with the 10 key result areas for better public services, you're starting to get the change, from, in my view, from public servants who were very passive and would give advice, that's a good idea, that's not a bad idea, um, or that's a crazy one, through to, Minister, here's how we can actually help you advance your agenda. And so it's a much more positive interaction. Put the political adviser into that mix. And I think you're developing uh, a much more fluid system than we've had previously. It's not the classic Westminster system where the public service was totally... Um, off to one side and really passive and, and in that sense traditionally impartial. I think it's still impartial but it's actually thinking more about how it advances the government's agenda in particular areas that have been stated than it was the case previously. Rob Eady is Mr Dunn's Chief of Staff and was Chief of Staff in the office of the National Prime Minister Jim Bolger from 1990 to 1997. Mr Eady says his role and that of other political advisers is essential, particularly under MMP. The role of the ministerial adviser in uh, doing the basic arithmetic and uh, doing consultation and getting support from support parties, uh, that's an essential role that can't be taken up by public servants. But Peter Dunn says care needs to be taken to ensure political advisers don't interfere with the legitimate role of public servants. We do need to be careful that political advisers or the, 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 the sort of the linking role that they play do not become a substitute for what is proper statutory process in a number of cases. D does there need to be a code of conduct specifically political, for political advisers oh. to, to make those sorts of lines clear? There probably should be, whether it's a formal code or whether it's written into conditions of appointment, but there probably should be, and there should certainly be... And you've seen over the years, you know, every now and then someone goes rogue, and you can see political advisers, and we've had a couple of examples during this government and a couple of examples during the previous government where political advisers have gone way beyond the brief that was accorded to them. And by and large, the system has been pretty quick to deal with them. The Victoria University academic Chris Eichbaum says political advisers can't be left to themselves. You need the active involvement of central agencies, particularly the State Citizens Commission, in providing, if you like, uh, terms of reference, operating rules, guidelines, I think a code of conduct. Is required. The PSA agrees, as Kirsten Winderlove, a union policy advisor, explains. 
ministerial advisers are public servants. They need to follow the same code of conduct as other public servants. Mind you, that's not always been clear to everybody, and I think what's needed is some clarification of what roles are. So what is the role of the political advisor or the politically appointed press secretary with departmental officials? Uh, what is the role of the cabinet minister in relation to departmental officials when that ministerial advisor is kind of standing in between those two roles? And I think a change to the cabinet manual would assist greatly in that. I know the State Services Commissioner has said previously, has said here on our premises, that that, mm. that kind of a change to the cabinet manual is needed. And we would agree with that. We'd also, we also agree that it's urgent that there's a code of conduct developed for political advisers or politically appointed people in ministers' offices. The State Services Commission did consider introducing a code of conduct for political advisers in 2009. But its then Minister Tony Ryle got a response to the proposal from the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Wayne Eagleson, himself a political adviser, saying the proposed work could only be described as low priority. The proposal was then dropped. Rob Eady doesn't believe a code of conduct should be introduced. Well, actually, we do sign a code of conduct on, 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 uh, when we take our contracts up. Um, I'm one of these schizophrenic ones who employed by two employing authorities, uh, parliamentary service and ministerial services, and I, have a, I sign a code of conduct for both of those for, um, you know, around integrity, ethics and so forth, which I think spins over in your conduct and your dealing in public affairs. So will we have a, a strict, a prescribed code? Um, I, I don't think that's necessary. Ian Rennie from the State Services Commission says it's now working on a code of conduct again. In 2013, when the State Sector Act was amended, uh, there was support across the Parliament to give the Commissioner uh, essentially the ability to apply uh, the code uh, or a tailored code to a particular workforce, uh, which, which hadn't been the case previously. Uh, so since 2013, for the first time, we have had uh, now the tools to develop a code of conduct. We are moving towards uh, uh, and talking with the relevant parties that we would need to about how we go about introducing a code. Uh, I believe there is merit in doing that. We are doing it though with a degree of care. In part that reflects that the role of ministerial advisers in particular offices is, is quite complex and very varied. Uh, there is no standard model. But Victoria University's Chris Eichbaum and the PSA are frustrated by the time it's taking to introduce a code. Kirsten Winderlove from the PSA says it has to happen sooner rather than later. We can't be complacent. We can't just sit back and think, well, we've got a really good system. We're ranked number one or number two in the world, depending on which year, on any given year. We need to make sure that we've got things in place that keep us there. And at the moment, this issue of what is the role of political advisers and ministers' offices, that's something that's not sorted. The country's leading researcher on gangs says he's being muzzled by the police who have blocked him from getting basic information. Jared Gilbert is also critical of the contract. Public servants sitting in offices in Wellington aren't the only ones who might be facing political pressure. Academics and researchers also complain they face increasing infringements on their right to academic freedom. In the case of Canterbury University's Jared Gilbert, the police have apologised for blacklisting him and refusing him access to police data for his research. But the president of the Tertiary Education Union, Sandra Gray, told Morning Report the problems Dr Gilbert faced are not isolated. 
The situation at the moment is quite severe in New Zealand in terms of um, the availability of public data, but also then public data being handed out to the public in ways that's accessible um, through academic research. And this is in part because people are worried about how the public are going to react to any information about what's going on inside our public sector, what's going on with the police, what's going on in our ministries. And I don't think that, you know, it's good for governments to lock down information. But is that ultimately then leading to, what, a constraining of information or, or something more, something that amounts to censorship? Well, certainly what we're seeing is um, academics and scientists um, across both the public and private sector, but in you know, Crown Research Institute saying we can't actually do our job properly anymore. So, you know, we had a survey of our own members, which, you know, two-fifths of them said it's very hard to practice academic freedom. Now, academic freedom is just the idea that we report results truly accurately as we can, that we get out there and we speak uncomfortable truths. It's not bad that we speak uncomfortable truths about our government sometimes. Is the government and its agencies trying to impose greater control on who should get information? And has the No Surprises Convention, introduced by Jim Bolger's government, made public servants too wary of the political consequences of releasing information under the Official Information Act? Ian Rennie doesn't think so. I don't think there's a problem about the No Surprises Convention. In fact, I think it is uh, essential. Uh, What I think is important is that uh, ministers, their officers and departments each respect and understand the other's roles and responsibilities, and in the vast majority of cases, I think that it does happen. Rob Eady says there's good reason why ministers want to know about information being made public to avoid being politically embarrassed. Peter Dunn agrees. The sort of situation that Rob refers to, um, of the big drop, and you don't know what's in it, is just political uh, suicide, potentially. I think you've got to be careful, though, and uh, that, that no surprises doesn't mean cover up or no surprises doesn't mean just sort of gild the lily a bit. No surprises has got, this comes back to the free and frank notion in a way, it's got to be that here's all the stuff that's being released or being made available, you need to be aware of it. But there have been examples of information being withheld before being released later after intervention from the Ombudsman's office. That in part has prompted the review of how government agencies are responding to requests under the Official Information Act. But the review hasn't looked at broader questions about the changing pressures the public service faces, particularly since the introduction of MMP, and whether that's compromising public servants' traditional tenet of political neutrality. So does Ian Rennie believe the public service has been politicised? I disagree with that strongly. I think there is a very strong uh, understanding within the public service about what it means to be a public servant and what that means in terms of political impartiality. Uh, I also think, and I've worked uh, closely with, with, with governments of a number of political persuasions over the last 25 years, I think in a vast uh, number of cases, both ministers and the staff that work for them closely in their office also understand and value the role that a professional and impartial public service provides. The PSA, though, is sceptical, and Erin Palachik thinks the politicisation of the public service starts with the State Services Commission itself. I think they are very, very mindful of what the ministers might believe and think, and uh, I think they're very well aware of um, the masters of the day. But from Peter Dunn's perspective, being aware of the masters of the day means public servants are simply more responsive to the government's policy agenda. Others argue it undermines the public service's traditional adherence to providing free and frank advice. 
Most appear to agree, however, that as the role of political advisers continues to grow and adapt, some code of conduct is needed to govern their behaviour. That might provide clearer guidelines for them and some protection for those public servants worried their political neutrality is being undermined. I'm Brent Edwards, and that's Insight for this week. If you have any thoughts, it would be great to hear from you. You can contact us on email at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Mark Chesterman.